Our passage this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 11. If you would turn there in your Bibles. We are continuing our look at 1 Corinthians. Let me shuffle my papers. I usually do this during our break. Okay. We are, Paul is yet again, I mean last week he said, now I commend you. And then he really didn't commend them very much. Uh, this week he says, I have nothing to commend you on. And he's angry again. And so they're really messy. But yet Paul loves Corinth. He loves the Corinthians. And he redeems them, right? He, or, uh, he's sharing with them, excuse me, the redemption of, his, of Jesus. So we've titled this series, Church, A Mess Worth Making. Not because we are just like Corinth, we're not. Although the American church, there are a lot of similarities. But really that we can learn something from these difficult texts. And this morning specifically, we're going to look at what is the Lord's Supper? And where did they go wrong? And, and maybe how do we share in, in some similar problems? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you'll again turn with me, 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter. Paul, or Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ, excuse me, of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we need your presence here, um, as always, your spirit to illumine your word. This is your scripture, and Lord, rightly understood, it will revive us and help us grow and show us more and more of who you are. Help me not muddle it, but Lord, help us this morning to understand more clearly what it is the Lord's Supper uh, and how we celebrate that for your glory. 
and for ours. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, I came across this article in the Atlantic recently called Eating Toward Immortality, right? Eating Toward Immortality. Let me get that part clear. The subtitle the author calls it says, Diet Culture is Just Another Way of Dealing with the Fear of Death. We live in a culture where there's plenty of diets, right? Food is everywhere and prevalent. And so the, the author is saying, look, now that there's so much food, especially in a first world country, uh, because of our fear of death, we've gravitated toward this need of diets. And he, it's a pretty interesting article, but I want to just read a few lines from it. He's quoting another author who says, Eating is the first magic ritual, an act that transmits life energy from one object to another. All animals must feed on another life to sustain themselves, whether in the form of breast milk, plants, or the corpses of other animals. The act of incorporation of taking a once living thing into your own body is necessary for all animals' existence. It is also disturbing and unsavory to think about, since it draws since it draws a direct connection between eating and death. He quotes another author who's talking about the denial of death, who says that we all walk around, he's talking about the general world, with a fear of dying. And this is a warm way to start a sermon. And so our dieting, our eating, our diet culture is trying to reverse the trend and figure out a way to prolong the inevitable. Uh, how many of you diet? No, don't raise your hand. His point isn't that we shouldn't diet, or, or you can, I can email you the article, but his point is, are we aware of why we do this? And more importantly for this discussion, of the connection of food and the importance of food in everyday life. Sometimes when we think about the Lord's Supper, it's like, why do we do that? Why do we eat that little piece of bread and drink that little glass? And Every week we kind of do this thing. And what I hope to show this morning is the importance of it, that Jesus knew what he was doing, when he chose a sacrament based on eating and drinking. And that for us, we are very easily led into thinking it's just a situation, a ceremony, a ritual. Uh, for the Corinthians, they had lost sight of it altogether. They had gotten so caught up in the meal. They really lost sight of the food aspect, the importance of what the bread and the wine pointed to. And I don't think that we're necessarily in the same camp that they are completely, but I will say uh, we do miss the Lord's Supper. And I hope this morning, not every time, not all of you, I'm, not, I'm saying in general it's a tendency for some of us to lose sight of what it means. And I hope that this discussion will help strengthen it and not confuse you. Um, but most importantly, that we'll understand that when we take the Lord's Supper correctly, that is when we understand what's happening, and when the Spirit is present and we take the Lord's Supper, it will, this passage teaches, result in unity in the body. It will always lead to a unified church. That's our goal. So we're going to look at a couple of things. Um, we, we're going to look at the vertical and the horizontal. That's the, really the two main points we're going to have. Um, and, I, and I want to start with the horizontal. When Jesus came, <clears throat> one of the questions a lawyer asks him is, what is the law? Summarize it. And you all remember the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the vertical. And love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Lord's Supper, we really do have in this meal, in this point in time every week, this opportunity to see the two come together. Right? So the question is, 
is the love of God and our, and our satisfaction in God leading us to community? You really don't have another option. I think when Jesus summarized the law in that way, he doesn't say, some of you are going to struggle. Some of you are going to really love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to struggle with God. Others of you are going to really love God and, and be satisfied in your relationship with God. Yeah, you're going to be bored with people. It's not an option, is it? For Jesus, and this isn't an introvert-extrovert thing either, everybody. This is a, a people thing. That For Jesus, when we grasp who he is in his, this meal and, and the way he takes away the sins of our lives, right? The sins fall away when you're in Christ. When you understand the joy and the reality of your union with him, all the reasons why you don't like people fall away, right? All the things that make people ugly to you, which is pride and arrogance and competition, fall away. And we'll begin to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what I hope to show. So let's look at this passage a little bit more closely as we deal with, first of all, the horizontal element of the Lord's Supper. Paul, right away, is bothered by this problem of their eating sort of in cliques. In Corinth, archaeologists tell us that the largest home they would have had, would, the dining area would have only set about 11 or 12 people. Right? They probably are meeting in someone's house, maybe Gaius, or one of the wealthier patrons, and when they would come together as an entire church, only 11 could come in, so there was a courtyard and other areas where other groups would have to meet. So they were still together as a group, but only a select few were in like the prime spot. And that probably led to, over time, uh, bringing your own food. So we're going to all, the 11 of us are going to sit in here, and you kind of found out who you wanted in your room, and we're going to eat this. And they would fend for themselves. And so it's obviously um, rude. I mean, I think we all get that, right? I mean, it's very rude when you're eating in front of somebody and they don't have any food, right? It's like, sorry if I'm eating in front of you. For them, it was not only rude, but it had even a larger issue. Eating in that day and age was so important. Remember the food sacrificed to idols? I mean, the underlying question was, how do we keep our social eating? The Corinthians weren't desperate for idol meat. They just wanted to make sure they could keep their social circles. And so, hey, can we get away with this? Well, as Christians, as they came together, that, that bred into it. Look at verse 19. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think Paul's being slightly tongue-in-cheek. In other words, your eating sets up a line of demarcation. And if you're going to have your group eating, there has to be factions among you. right? Remember um, Paul in his letter to the Galatians when he tells them, you guys have this problem, and it reminds me of what Peter did in Antioch. You know what Peter did in Antioch? Peter ate with the Gentiles, even though he was a Jew, until what? The Jews showed up. Then he separates himself and says, I'm going to only eat with the Jews, which really said culturally to the Gentiles, you're second class. You're not where we are. And Paul, in front of everybody, he doesn't like send him a letter, privately tell him. He, in front of everybody, confronts him right to his face. So for Paul, it's a very huge travesty to cut people out in this opportunity and in this way. And so that's what's happening in Corinth. This idea that even though this love feast had come, even though that Jesus had provided his body and his blood, which we'll talk about in a moment and spend more time on, 
they were still using this as a social gathering situation. Now, how does that play out today? I don't think most of us think in those terms. I don't think we are trying to cut people out of Christianity or we're saying you're not worthy, but we're fairly cliquish as a culture, right? Now, let me begin by saying this about this church. One of the things that drew me here was that grace is so welcoming. So I'm going to lift you up for a minute. I'm going to lift this all up. I came in the doorway, and it's this long, dark, some of you are new this morning. You're like, why am I even here? It's just like, it felt like a football field length, skinny hallway. And I was a little early, so there was nobody, which is probably even better. Uh, Chad, it was you. I've told you this story. It was Chad Blue. I saw the blazer, uh, the quaffed hair. No, I'm kidding. He's getting picked on by everybody. It's a compliment. But it was when I came into the worship service, and I'm a, I'm a stranger. I'm preaching. Nobody knows me. It's an awkward Sunday for you guys. Like Jonathan had just resigned. And yet, I watched you interact and love each other. And that really, I went home and said, Emily, like this, this group of people likes each other. Like they're fun. And I've since, as new people have come in, you've said that. So in one sense, I want to say, Paul would commend us, right? I mean, grace is doing well. So this is not a beat up grace moment or beat us each up. But, but there are some things that I think we could work on. Uh, my friend Brian Larison has handed me a book I have not yet read all of. It's a meal with Jesus. He's fairly passionate, so I highly recommend reaching out to Brian about this topic. The author is Tim Chester. Here's what he says. He says, our relationship to food is ambiguous. Television chefs have become celebrities, and cookbooks regularly appear on bestseller lists. Yet we cook less than ever before. Americans spend over $50 billion on dieting each year. $50 billion to solve the problem of food gone wrong. At any given moment, 25% of American men and 45% of women are dieting. Only 9% of college-aged women have never tried to control their weight through dieting. American Christians spend more on dieting than on world missions. We spend more cure that's Christians, by the way. We spend more curing our overconsumption than we do feeding the physically and spiritually hungry of the world. We express who we want to be through food. When things go wrong, food becomes the place of refuge. The brokenhearted console themselves on the sofa with a tub of ice cream. You are what you eat, people say. Food is so much more than fuel. Now, this author is not saying quit dieting. In fact, dieting is a great thing. Sometimes we need to stop and watch what we eat. Or don't eat ice cream. Ice cream is made by God. Enjoy your ice cream. I, I, where he's going is Jesus, when Jesus came, one of the most common descriptions of Jesus is he came eating and drinking. Now, he didn't create that culture, but he came right into that culture. Well, he created it, of course, deity. But meaning he took advantage of the fact that everyone loved food, and he created this reality, and meals were a very common way to share life together. And so I think what the author is saying there is let's quit acting like we don't have enough food. And another thing he doesn't say there, but we don't have enough time. I mean, if we really cleared the, the schedule, we have a lot of time, and we have a lot of food. We just don't get together over meals, and that might be an issue. Um, so... I, was gonna, I told Doug this week, I'm going to have everyone raise their hand if they've either had someone in the church over or have been over to someone's house in the church this week. But I'm not going to do it. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa, do I? You know, Some of you don't like being called out in sermons. Yet the reality is 
as new pastors, we really struggle. It's very easy to get caught up. I'm the pastor, but as a new family. Uh, and, and having so much going on and sometimes being invited places that it, it's easy to not square away that time for fellowship and to have people into your home and to know each other well. And so I think that's part of this message. Really, the point being, not just eating meals together, but do you know each other? Do you even want to know each other? Uh, the quote on the front of the uh, worship guide this week um, says, and I want to just repeat it again, where, where Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. and Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Somewhere else, Lewis, and I'm using Shane's advice. When I don't have my own words, I'll just use Lewis and maybe a couple of Keller quotes. Um, no, but somewhere else, Lewis says a pr- profound thing where he says, if you take an average, I'm, this is going through the Ryan brain meal. Uh, take an average person, maybe someone you, you don't even care to know very well, and see them in their heavenly presence, if they're a Christian, right? See them the way God sees them, and you will be tempted to worship. I think if we could see the most mundane and boring person in this room the way God sees that person, we would be tempted to worship that person. That would be wrong. Don't worship people. But the point is they are lovely. You are lovely. Your neighbor is lovely. And yet we don't build time for each other. We really don't see the benefit in it at all. So with that in mind, we're gonna, that's the horizontal view that the Lord's Supper, hopefully one of the things we'll get from this discussion is when we grasp what's really happening in the supper, it'll revive our desire to have meals together. And I would really like to see our church get better at that. I don't know what program, I don't necessarily want to write up a structure, but maybe we begin to pray about that as a community. How do we not only get to know each other better through meals, but how do we get to know unbelievers and have them into our homes as well? And, and our neighbors, that, you know, how many of us don't know our neighbors very well? We, our culture has become so fragmented that I think this would be a good opportunity to really stop and, and start coming closer together through the Lord's Supper and through the fact that we love each other and should have unity. Okay, how do we do that? Where does the power come from that, right? For Paul, his whole point is, if you understood the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every week correctly, this would be your desire, right? Where does he say that? Well, in the passage. He's just finished discussing the struggles, and in verse 23, he starts this portion, which you all hear every week when Shane and I fence the table and, and, share, and institute the supper. This is where it comes from. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup of the supper after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's two primary things he says to do. Remember and proclaim, right? Remember. Let's look at remembering first. Uh, What is this Passover meal? These words of institution are in 1 Corinthians by Paul, 
which really mirror Luke's same description. And then in Matthew and Mark, you have a very similar uh, passage. So these, this is Jesus saying, here's the Lord's Supper, here's the sacrament. But this, and it's coming from right around the Passover meal he had with his disciples. What is that Passover meal? Remember we studied the life of Moses? Most of you know the story of, of Moses. Uh, he had come as the mouthpiece of God to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, right? And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he said, forget it, even though I've seen all these other nine plagues, you're not going anywhere, right? So Moses tells them about the plague, they don't, but he tells the Israelites, do this, and he gives them these instructions. You're to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it. And you'll take the blood from that lamb and spread it over the doorpost, the lintel of the home. And that blood is what will keep the angel of death from taking your firstborn. He will pass over your home. You, you know the story. But they also consumed the lamb. They ate that lamb. And what's fascinating is that when Moses is giving the instructions to the Israelites for the very first Passover meal, he gives them the command to keep doing this every year. This is going to be a memorial. You're going to remember what has taken place here. All the way into the time of Jesus, right, and beyond. But for Jesus and his disciples are having a Passover meal. What does Jesus do a little differently? He says, I am the lamb. This all has pointed to me. I am the one who has taken away your sin. So, are you remembering that? Are you, when we come into worship and we move this to this meal, are you remembering your forgiveness of sin? Your adoption? The fact that you are justified by Christ alone through faith alone? That you've done nothing to earn that? Is that what you're remembering or are you thinking about your works? Are you thinking about what sort of Christian you've been all week? How you feel? Sometimes the way you feel. Maybe that's the kind of Christian you are. So remembering is preaching the gospel, is believing the gospel, right? It's understanding that you are a new creation in Christ. Are you remembering that? Now, listen, it's much more than a memorial, right? In fact, I won't go into all the details tonight. You can, we can discuss it. There'll be some lively discussion probably on transubstantiation. For years, the church taught that these elements, once they're instituted by the priest, which we are not, um, they became the body and the blood, right? That was one idea. The, all the reformers said no. But within the reformer camp in the 1500s, Luther held closer to that view. He said that Christ is still present. Tonight I'll let Thomas explain what that means later. Uh, and then Zwingli on the other side said it's just a memorial. It's just something. Hey, I'm sorry. Every time, bro. I'm going to call you out. Uh, he, he has a good knowledge of, of consubstantiation. So does um, Mark Penny. So we'll let them have fun tonight. So Zwingli's the other side. That's what our culture practices. Sort of just, just remembering. Remember? Pass the plate. You know, just, okay. Calvin had a little bit more of a middle ground, probably closer to Luther, in that the Holy Spirit is present in the meal. Okay? And the Holy Spirit, I love Cal- Calvin. He plays the, uh, it's a mystery card. So, um, he doesn't even go so far as to fully explain it, which frustrates everybody. Like, what did Calvin really think was happening? And we're Presbyterians. We're, con- we're totally accused of, like, there's no Holy Spirit there. And then I'm like, okay, here's an entire theology that says the Holy Spirit is who is present in this meal. And a lot of the people that love the Holy Spirit say, ah, it's too easy. 
That's, that's the point. The Holy Spirit is in these elements in you, and if you are a Christian, is applying all the beauties of Christ to you in this meal. It is profound, beyond what you think. We should struggle with it for the rest of our lives. But yet, you are called to remember. Are you remembering these truths? When my grandmother died, um, so she was, my, my grandfather had already passed away, my brother came to town, and we decided to go to the home we best remembered of our childhood from them. They had built a home in Edmond, and it was the place where we, as children, really had our treehouse and the creek and this huge bathtub on the second floor that was just gigantic. And my brother and I said, let's just go see who's living there. And it's a risky thing to do because you might get there and they're rude or they've changed everything. But they were wonderful. And we said, sure, come on in. And, uh, and, and the house looked very, very much the same. And as a child, my granddad had built the house, so they had given me the blueprints. I almost used those for our church building. For those, it crossed my mind. Let's just turn these in. Um, but these were blue, back when the blueprints were still blue. And I remember just studying them and then going to their home. And, and so as adults, my brother and I walked through the house and remembered things. And, and as we drove away from that experience, we were satisfied. You know? She died in Colorado, and, and, and we had not yet gone to the memorial. But we had satisfied. It was something about that memory and that experience and reliving it. The physicality of it. So, when you come to the Lord's Supper, we have these elements that are like, they, they, they remind you of something, right? But also, they proclaim. This is important. They proclaim something. At the end of that passage right there, or that portion in verse 26, Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So often, our fellowship with each other is broken because our lives are so ensconced in our daily activities, right? We're busy. We're going from here to there. And what would it take to kind of shake that up, right? A long time ago, I heard, um, I think it was in, someone was talking about, like, meditation. And they said one of the keys to meditation, one technique is to remember to, to pretend you died. And if you died, like yesterday and you were just walking around, what you would notice, it's kind of weird, what you would notice is that all your responsibilities didn't get done, right? But the world went on, you know? Someone else would pick up the important ones, other things just fall to the ground. Anyway, I don't re recommend that necessarily, but as a Christian, I certainly do, right? In Christ, in Christ, all of, of your responsibilities have been taken care of. That is, if tomorrow he returned, you would never say, but I've got some more things I've got to do. You know, I've got that meeting. I really wanted to go on that vacation. All of that stuff is subservient to the fact that we're longing for Christ to return. I preached a sermon in Norman, and afterwards, this is when I first got back, uh, so one of my last uh, forays into the enemy territory. And one of the guys uh, there who... I guess was a PhD student, said, I'm really into um, industry disruption. Have, who knows that term? It's like a popular thing now. It's like, you know, throughout history, there are these industries, and then a new one pops up, destroying or disrupting this industry, right? For example, at some point in time, there was like that last buggy whip maker. You know, he kept, you know, the, bug, the metaphorical buggy whip, right? 
real one. But you know, there's that last guy that's like, I think we can continue. Everyone else is jumping out of the industry. Cars aren't going to do as good as you think. Let's keep making buggy whips. And one day his wife had to say, nah, this ain't working. So it was disrupted. So this guy is saying, well, what we're doing now, instead of letting these old, mean, rich industries hold on too long, is there's, there's a whole movement of trying to create ways to disrupt industry with better technology. So think of the green movement, okay? Anyway, I've always been interested in that idea, industry, industry disruption. Jesus is an industry disruptor. If you have Jesus, all of a sudden, all of your affections, all of your hopes, everything that had been planted firmly in the world or in the flesh had been disrupted. And the Christian's longing is for his return. And so when we come to the meal, it's our opportunity not only to remember all the truths that we have in Christ, but to long for his coming. Every week we have this opportunity of fresh application. Um, let me read this quote by Richard Lovelace. I'm going to read it again in a minute. So I've read a lot of quotes. Partly I want to use other people's words so mine aren't all muddled on such an important topic. Richard Lovelace says it beautifully, though. I believe that a return to a stronger view of the supper and the more frequent communion advocated by the Reformers would be immensely helpful to the spiritual life of Protestantism. This is true because the communion service is the most graphic embodiment of the primary elements of spiritual renewal. <clears throat> so he says, I'm going to say it again. Communion is the most graphic embodiment of the primary elements of the spiritual renewal that Christ offers us in his death and resurrection, especially his justifying work for us and his sanctifying life in us. It demonstrates the reality of our union with Christ in the most concrete manner possible. It also clearly indicates and celebrates the communion of the saints with one another. Right? So our relationship to Jesus, justification, sanctification, glorification, our relationship to the saints, and he ends by saying, and even it's a perfect realization of the extension of the Jewish Passover of the Old Covenant. So we're connected to the saints throughout history. The Lord's Supper does these things. It's a perfect opportunity for those things. I'll read that again. Some of you are like, why when we do the Lord's Supper? So there it is. Um, that's going to be the weirdest thing to go from this sermon to, let me tell you about the Lord's Supper in a moment. Okay, here's the problem. In a little while, we'll get up, you'll come forward, and you're like, man, we just heard this entire long, slightly boring sermon on the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to pinch off a little bread and take a little juice or wine and take it, and that's going to transform me? Like, you know, has, has that crossed anyone's mind? Like, this is all great, but it's this weird moment. Well, historically, the Lord's Supper was on the tail end of a feast, right? The early church had these meals, and, and eventually uh, it made sense, and we agree. And even in this passage, Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home, but we'll retain this portion of it, the food. But here's the point. The whole thing is encapsulated in what happens in these brief moments. Right? The remembering, the proclaiming, all of it is, is everyday life. It's all, this is just where you're celebrating it. Have you ever gone out to eat at a restaurant you love? Emily and I like Ted's. We used to go to Ted's a lot. And what I noticed about Ted's and Edmund's, it's Tex-Mex, is you would wait forever in line. When you finally got a seat, there's a million people still waiting. And 
they would, we knew what we wanted, so we didn't have to even look at it. Oh, we'll just have the blah, blah, blah. It was on our table, like, within two minutes. And we felt compelled to, like, eat and leave, you know, because there are people waiting, and you're like, and you always have that friend that's like, don't worry about them. We all waited. But you're like, oh, I'm type A. I can't do this. And then you move on. But then you go out and say, I love Ted's. Ted's is the greatest. That was wonderful, and I feel the food, and you look forward to the next time. So I'm just encouraging us, let's not judge the Lord's Supper by the few moments here, okay? And I'm not trying to be mean, but don't even think, I've got to really stay solemn. You can share, you can talk in line, say hi to each other, you know? It's okay. You can be quiet, too. Sometimes, you know, we're in a group, maybe look around. Every now and then I'm serving the Lord's Supper, and I'll say, oh, hi, good to see you, and the person's like, oh, my goodness, he talked to me. We're all human. We're all brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to diminish it, but what I am trying to say is that its significance is not how well you do it. Its significance is what Jesus has already done for you. That's the significance. And he is saying, you know what? This is so hard to even believe. I'm going to give you one more way to believe it. An actual piece of food. By the way, they take more than a pinch. You're welcome to... I get it. You don't have a long time. You don't want to be chewing it. We're going to always try to figure out how best to celebrate it. But, but take it and eat it and drink that juice or wine to your conscience and know that this is significant. The Spirit is here. And as real as these elements are, and I taste them and smell them and feel them, Jesus is even more real. And my salvation and security is real in him. Okay, there's a couple of warnings in this passage I just want to touch on for two minutes, and I'll conclude. It's weird. People were getting sick and dying because of how they took the communion. I read several, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at every commentary I can find. Like, someone give me an out. You know, one, one person said, well, there was a famine in Corinth. This is a great commentary. There's a famine in Corinth. Possibly the wealthy people weren't letting the, the poor people eat, so they were getting sick and dying. The problem is, he says, as a solution, eat at home. Basically, to the wealthy people, eat at home and come so you're not hungry. So I don't think he's trying to cure famine through this process. Others would say it's a spiritual sickness. So it's like you're just going to grow distant from God. Well, here's what, let me just tell you what we first sure know, and then I'll, and I'll just draw the conclusion and be done. Number one, it says some have fallen asleep. That's the Greek word. The fear is not eternal damnation. Paul's saying, oh, you'll go to heaven, but your spiritual life here is definitely being thwarted by the fact that you're not living in unity with the body of Christ. That, think of, if I said to you, what is the number one cause of death in, in America today? Heart attack. Most of that's self, a lot of that's self-induced. I'm not going to go into all that. Anxiety is a huge issue, right, in our culture. Depression. We are people who are often sick even maybe die young because of the fact that we aren't experiencing the beauties and the life-saving realities of the gospel. And enjoying each other, enjoying rest, enjoying the word, enjoying fellowship. So that's not a perfect example, but I think Paul's warning is fair. But these the ramifications of, of ignoring your brother or sister are very big and very large. And you may have problems. Now, let me tell you what you should never do with this passage. Well, I'm sick. Maybe I'm not taking the Lord's Supper correctly. That's not what, they, they were guilty of this and they knew it. 
Does that make sense? Don't, don't turn it around and say, well, I'm sick, or I know someone that's sick. Maybe they're not taking You can do that and ask, are we taking the Lord's Supper well? And definitely examine yourself and examine the way you're going about it. But I'm just saying don't assume automatically that somehow Paul is trying to tell you your spirituality is why you're ill or your loved one is ill. Rather, examine yourself, meaning examine your spirituality. Examine what do you believe about your neighbor? What do you believe about the gospel? Is it accurate? And is it leading to unity in the body? All right. Easy. Homework assignment. Everyone have people over. Okay. Um, get to know people. I had a professor who, um, Jaron Bars, J. People, we wore the bracelet WWJD. What would Jaron do? A godly man um, on campus at seminary, but he was an atheist, and then he was converted. And he said he would walk into a room, and this is weird because he was not boasting. It sounds boastful. He really wasn't. But he, one of his goals, and he's a very quiet, British, amazing guy, would be to find the one person who seemed the most of the outcast. And he would figure out how to get close to that person. And I think that's what the gospel should do. It should draw us to people who are not like us. Right? People who make us uncomfortable should become our friends. Maybe the people we haven't talked to in a long time, we need to reconcile and repair those relationships. This can all happen around a meal, or it can happen in a conversation, or in any way possible, but it's because of what the Lord's done, which we see at the Lord's Supper. He's rescued you. He's died for you. He's drawn you into union, communion, union into himself, and he courses through your veins. You are a new creation. Let's live like that. Amen. Heavenly Father, too much to cover in a little amount of time. I know my friends, Lord, have heard a lot of uh, conversation this morning. But we pray, Holy Spirit, and we actually proclaim your promise that you are with us in this meal. That you will reveal to us freshly in, in in a profound way our union with you, our adoption to you, our relationship to you in this meal, that you have forgiven our sins. I pray, Lord, as we go to communion, that you would be honored and glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.